The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Coming up today, after it emerged last week that the Premier League has held talks to scrap its upcoming domestic TV rights auction and instead roll over its existing £5 billion deal, we'll ask simply, what next for broadcast rights in English football? Well, I say simply, it might not be. This is the Business of Sport from The Athletic. Well, as you've written, Matt, this week on The Athletic in a massive article, wasn't it? Which I know probably took you quite a while to dig into, but you've written on the financial state, really, of of the Premier League clubs, revenues down, losses up. One of the themes as well is that even in normal times, there would have been concern as to what the next domestic broadcast deal would look like. And the Premier League are pushing for for something a bit different with this next one that's coming. Yeah, I mean, it's a similar picture. Well, it's the last year, really, even before we came into COVID. What was it Alan Sugar said about TV money going through football clubs like Prune Juice, you know, in the front door, out the back? But football clubs, you know, spend, spend what they've got to spend. About 70% of Premier League income comes from TV money. It's been a fantastic success story for both parties, really, particularly Sky, over the last 30 years, they've grown together. The uh, basis of that growth has been these sort of rolling three-year auctions. Premier League clubs, all football really, but particularly the Premier League, has done very, very well out of sort of creating kind of competition. So having a great partner in Sky, but ideally you want someone challenging Sky. So that has been in the past, well, you know, uh, Satanta, ESPN briefly, and of course BT. And they really went at it for a few years. And we had back-to-back 70% increases on these three-year cycles about a decade ago. Now, in, the, in, in more recent years, peace has broken out between Sky and BT. They were actually competing over something else. TV or football rights were almost a proxy war. They were really going after the broadband market in, 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 your, in our homes. BT have sort of realised they were perhaps overpaying for football, that they sort of established what they wanted to establish, which was Sky, get off our lawn with the broadband stuff. Sky were like, okay, fine, we will be the home of football. And they sort of shook hands. And that was bad news for the Premier League. So you had that kind of domestic tension in an auction go. So then, okay, so what does Premier League do? Well, they, they you know, it's fine because the sport is exploding abroad right you know the international deals which no one thought would be worth anything when the Premier League was set up no one really thought it through to be honest we're, we're making good on the fact that the domestic deals were kind of flattening off so that that's that's been fine and that brings us to sort of now the COVID era we've seen this sort of domestic pattern that we have here where peace has broken out and where that tension isn't in the market anymore we've seen it in Germany Italy France And we kind of know that's what we're looking at here. You know, BT are not going to go after Sky. There doesn't appear to be a big enough new entrant, someone like DAZN or Amazon. But the Premier League have been desperate to sort of introduce some new energy, some new oxygen to this fight. It doesn't appear to be there. Fine. And, you know, and as I said, the international market is a bit, it's a bit up in the air as well. We know about what happened with the Chinese deal at the beginning of this year. You know, there's a lot of hope around the North American deal. All to be discussed. And on top of that, as I said, you've got a year's worth of COVID, paying behind closed doors, broadcaster rebate, all the extra costs. So the Premier League have decided, well, look, we should have had our auction. We should have had our auction for the 2022-2025 period. 
well, about a month or so ago, to be honest, because they always do it about halfway through the, the existing three-year cycle. They said, no, look, the market's not right. And I think everyone kind of agreed it would be a funny time to go to the market when it's just so much up in the air. What we've learned in the last week or so is they thought, you know what, let's just roll it over on the same terms, which from a Premier League and club's point of view would be a great idea because standing still right now is winning relative to the rest of Europe. Germany's domestic deal. They went to the market, took a 10% haircut. Italy was a mess. France, we know about their really exciting 1 billion euro deal fell apart within two, three months of it starting. And they now had to go, they had to go back to their market, back to their old broadcasters who said, you're having half. Disaster for France. So standing stills a win. There are, of course, though, competition issues. There's always competition issues, competition law, because you are therefore, by, by giving the same lot the same deal again, and that would be Sky, BT and Amazon, you are not giving an opportunity to new entrants. So this is why it's gone to the government. The government have to sign this off. So that's where we're at. It's all a bit complicated, but, you know, it, it, it makes sense. Let's go a little deeper on this then, bringing our first guest on the pod this week, Sean Harvey, former CEO of the EFL, the English Football League, that is, for our overseas listeners. With your CEO hat on of a football organisation in the past, does it make sense to you, this? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, you know let's just go back to what Matt said. I mean, you know, there was always the general view that the last deal the EFL concluded would be the last deal that was done in the domestic market that showed, showed some growth. And, you know, and that was how the market was reacting because you know, whilst you know, the ability to consume football is growing, the actual market to sell it to is actually constricting because you know, if, you do, if you do get alliances or understandings you know, between the major broadcasters, where is the market? I think it's an imminently sensible move on, t- on two counts. First of all, protecting where you are at this moment in time would, would be top of anybody's list. You know, however ambitious you may be, you know, however rosy-coloured your glasses are, you may, may be, to stand still, as Mark said, would be a massive achievement. But you've also got the other factor to take into account. And, you know, we, we've talked a lot, haven't we, in the last sort of seven to ten days about loyalty in football. Sky, BT, Amazon, all stood by the Premier League at a time where contractually they could have probably taken a far harsher approach than they did from a financial perspective. From their perspective, they look to the future. They look to where does this business model go? You know, and, you know, without waking up a completely different debate and introducing it to this one, you know, if Sky and BT had taken a far more draconian approach, which contractually they were probably going to do, what would that have then meant for the Super League? Now, I'm not going to sit here and advocate the Super League, but if you remove income from the top Premier League clubs, the incentive to move elsewhere to find alternative solutions would be far greater and potentially a lot more understanding by the fans. You know, listen, it would have had to have been pitched in a completely different way to what it was, but I actually think football owes, well, football owes Sky and BT generally for the funding it's brought in over a number of years. But this isn't, this isn't the time or the cycle to go looking for that extra 1%. What we've all got, what I think football needs to do over this next three-year period is consolidate and build again for the future. Just on actual how TV rights work, I, I have never managed to, I've never asked anybody, bear in mind I work in TV as well, but I've never actually sat down with anybody in TV and gone, what happens? How, how, what, what do you, I mean, you send out your packages and then what happens? You get a sort of closed envelope back with an offer from a broadcaster 
and you pick the highest. Is that it? Yeah, and it, all, it, and it always amazed me when they arrived in a brown envelope as well. It just, it was the, irony, the irony, the irony was just absolutely wonderful with your name written on the front of it with some senior executive from a broadcasting company. I mean, to be honest, and just and just for the re- just for the record, all that was in there was the response to the tender. But <laughs> but, that, but that but that but that is but, that, but Mark, that's the point. You know, the tender document goes out in a completely transparent way. It has to do to meet all the competition law requirements that that exist. So everybody is quoting on or, or putting their offers in on exactly the same basis. So you know, your colleagues, you know, colleagues in in broadcasting, sit down and. And trying to evaluate what are the value of those rights to us? Where does it sit inside our program? And there are a lot of people, a lot of very, very clever people working many, many years in advance on broadcasting strategies as to how to keep or attract new or attract new customers. You know, and the offers come in, and you know, I remember I remember sitting there, having having got the tender document, tender document out. You know, you sit like an expectant father. Return, wait, you know, waiting for you know, waiting for the delivery of these. That all go either into a secure email address or literally are hand delivered to hand delivered to the offices. Such is the confidentiality of the documents because it's a bidding war, or that's at least what a broad, you know, what the leagues are trying to achieve. And you do need competition. You know, without com- without competition, you are definitely at you know the, the goodwill. You, know, you, you hold yourself hostage to the goodwill of the broadcaster. You know, and, and Sky with the EFL have been good for many many years. You know, they have probably known that they were on they, they were the only serious bidder in town, bidder in town, yet haven't taken, should we say, a really harsh business structural view because they actually wanted to fund the game to grow because actually the better the game, the better the product for them, and more people would watch it. So actually, investing in the game was in their was in their in their favour, even though it was going to cost even though it was going to cost more money. So. It's Mark, in simple terms, that's how it works. And then once obviously you've got the offers in, you know, ultimately, you know, if you've got two parties, you know, the wonderful world of dark arts comes to play. You know, what seeds of doubt are you able to create for in, inside the competition? Now, you can't you can't do that without competition. Sure, I just want to bring you back to, the, you know, you mentioned that the deal that you, the last deal that you did, uh, the, that EFL deal, which which at the time was controversial. Uh, it's a five-year deal. I think you did it in about 2018. Took about a year to close, if I remember rightly. Yep. Goes from 2019 to 2024. That's right. It was a lot of money. It was it was best part of 600 million quid. About a third was it 30, 35 percent up That's on the right. yeah. previous deal. Yeah. So so you know look you know right now that's that sounds and looks good, but at the time. You heard a lot. You got a lot of criticism from some certain championship clubs who thought, "Well, hold on a minute. Could you have done better? One, is it too long? You know, going five years, not three, because the market could be. Everyone always sort of thinks, you know, don't don't tie our hands for too long. Um, but then the flip side is, well, actually, right now might be a time to tie things in. We all know that with our mortgages and interest rates, it's always a bit of a gamble, right? And certainly, broadcasters quite like long term deals, don't they? But then Absolutely. their competitors who are locked out will go straight to the government or straight to the competition authorities and say, five years, 10 years, whatever it is, as it is in the States, is too long. We need an opportunity to get into this market. So, you know, that deal raised so many of the issues that we're kind of sort of talking about now. You know, what do you what what were the challenges that you faced and, and, and why did you go? with Sky at that price for that length of time. We went to market, took, 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 took the auction, and, and ultimately both Sky and BT bid for those rights and bid 
sensibly for those rights. You know, so we had two genuine interests. It was right at the time where BT were looking at what their strategy was. Arguably, if BT had secured the AFL's rights at that stage, it, they might have taken a different view with regard to some other properties as, properties as well. Because what the AFL provides is is bulk coverage. You know, it, it gives it gives somebody the opportunity to utilise a lot of live content. So it offers something different to the Premier League um, because it, it, it's it's there. It's you know, I don't, I'd never call the AFL the filler in terms of a, a broadcasting schedule because that's a disrespect to everybody that's involved. But from the broadcaster's perspective, it's where is that whole football offering? And that's where the AFL could successfully position itself. You know, and plus with 72 clubs, length and breadth of the country, you know, Sky and BT are looking at a nationwide um, subscription base rather than a subscription base based around 20, you know, 20, 20 hubs that change from time to time, a lot of which are in the same geographic area. So the EFL has had lots going for it. And the reason we did a five-year five year deal was that all the market intelligence we were pick, picking up and all the advice was that the rights, domestic rights market was going to go, was going to go down. And they said, of course, pre, pre-COVID. So it was a general view that there was going to be a reduction in values going forward and from the afl's perspective the general view was exactly what you is now being advocated as being really sensible for the premier league let's lock the money in now then we can build with some certainty for the future and let's see how the market develops let's see if there's lots of new entrants let's see if somebody wants to take the ott offering on on a more wider basis but we were never ever going to be the first competition that had that opportunity it was always going to be a Premier League because they're the only markets that ultimately can test the model as to whether it would be financially beneficial. The EFL has a critical mass in terms of games, but not the critical mass in terms of supporters and particularly overseas. You know, if you you know if you are a Barnsley supporter, you are a Barnsley supporter. You don't adopt Barnsley as your team. You know, it, it comes to you by birth in general, and that and that same story applies for the vast majority. So we locked the deal in on the basis that we gave the EFL financial security. Now, I am not going to sit here and, and obviously predict, say that obviously, you know, with COVID coming, it, you know, it's proved to be an inspired decision because COVID has been horrible for, for, for everybody. But actually what it does prove is that the decision to lock the income in and protect yourself against everything going forward was the right thing to do. Albeit, you know, nobody could have predicted COVID was coming. And it's actually that money and that security that has actually kept a lot of EFL clubs in, in business in a, sim, in a similar place. Now, there is always the view that somebody could do a better deal. And, you know, there's no doubt that certain clubs individually could do a better deal for themselves than they get as a share of the collective. But who do they play against? And this is the issue of collective selling against individual selling that, you know, the Premier League have conjured with, where the bigger Premier League clubs want to go to with some OTT, you know, pay-per-view type individual offerings. And, you know, that builds individual clubs, not competitions. You know, and I'm a firm believer that you need a strong competition to create the collective wealth for everybody. You know, the big six have done really well on the back of the collective competition moving away from that actually devalues their product, not actually increases it, because who are they going to play? Do you think this deal as well, if they can just roll this over, keeps them as a collective for at least three more years and staves off the individual side of things and the fragmentation 
of broadcasting rights. Mark, it kicks the really difficult conversation about fragmentation of rights and how to maximise income three years down the line. And, you know, the reason the EFL took the five-year deal was we wanted to see how that market was going to mature to see, to see what, your, what was the best position to put yourself in. With everything that's gone on, there isn't the new entrance to the market, which is why Matt said that they're looking at uh, rolling it over. So we're not there yet. And that is cool. I, I do genuinely believe that is COVID-related. It's the COVID impact that has stopped the market maturing to allow every, all the strategists that have put the plans together for it to come to fruition. So it's an issue delayed rather than an issue taking, taken off the table. You saw the first break from the Premier League, didn't you, when, when, they did the, when they decided to distribute their international revenue differently. That was the first break from you know, the plan that you know, Richard Scudamore had supported. You know, as, he, as he always said, you know, he's nearly to the grave wanted in terms of making sure that the collective, it was equal, the equal distribution on, on the formula that was agreed in the founders' agreement. Giving a bigger share of the international thing was the first sort of eking out and the first change of that particular, you know, that particular approach. And that was the sign that things will change. So I think from the, for the good of the game in this country and the good, of, which starts at the Premier League, comes down to the EFL and then floats all the way through the pyramid, just rolling it over is exactly the right approach. And as I say, from, a, from an executive's perspective, it moves the real big issue of are we actually approaching the right the, our, our, our market to maximise return further down the line? And that today isn't a bad thing. Fragmentation is a really interesting concept because because the the idea, obviously, at Premier League level, is that 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 the big six, you know, the rich six, whatever you want, will just make a lot more money out of fragmentation. But if you actually look at it from the EFL point of view, and I can only go on a personal experience here. So, at the moment, my son on a Saturday afternoon will will pay a tenner to Watford and watch Watford on his laptop on a Saturday afternoon whilst having, you know, Soccer Saturday on a big screen. I clip around the ear and say, put five live on, not Soccer Saturday. But, you know, so he's so he's doing that and he's got his second screen with the Watford game on. Now, that isn't, that's not a financial thing. That's a, that's a fan demanding that he wants to be able to watch his team because they aren't going to get the, the coverage that a Premier League team will get. And when we've talked to American broadcasting experts, you know, there is now, well, actually, if we're going to show this championship game, we're going to do it in one way on Nickelodeon to try and bring kids in, but we'll also show it on ESPN and CBS and so on and so forth. Fragmentation, I I often think, is becoming more and more a demand of us, the fans, let alone from the CEO point of view of clubs thinking, oh, this is more money for us. So how do you balance that? So, so it's consumer-driven, and yeah, well, we've got a really sort of interesting dichotomy at the moment because you know, using Matt, using your as an example of your son, you know, which is replicated up and down the country with different teams, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Of course, on a Saturday afternoon at the moment, nobody can go into the stadiums. So the service, I mean, we we set the iFollow service up for the EFL to maximise the potential revenue of overseas fans who couldn't who couldn't get to the game, but that's the key bit: who couldn't get to the game. It was all about supplementing gate revenue, not replacing it. EFL clubs' single biggest revenue still still is gate receipts, and will probably be through the next at least the next two, three, four cycles of of TV rights. So Saturday afternoon, three o'clock. Yes, you might clip him around the ear for not listening to Five Live, <laughs> but the fact is, he's replacing his live experience yeah. in the stadium 
with watching it on the screen because that's all that's available to him. So I think from a football club's perspective, the real challenge is, do they actually want your son, in this example, watching the game on his on, on, a, on a tablet at home, or do they actually want him through the turnstiles at, at Vicarage Road? Now, I accept there are people that would want to watch their team that no longer live in the area. But let's just assume it is, it is, it is practical to get to the ground to watch the game live on a Saturday afternoon. Well, hang on a minute. Where are we going with this? Because do you replace, is, £10 is his £10 subscription replacing a £20 ticket? How many people are watching that, which would have come as a family of four, would have come through? So when we talk about, it's not just fragmentation, it's a consumer issue. It's a case of live sport in person, live sport on a screen. So watching football on a screen has been a great replacement at this moment in, at this moment in time because it's all that's available. But when you talk about things that could change the financial picture of football going forward, actually the fragmentation that you've just talked about is probably one of the single biggest challenges that people are going to have to take on. How do you consume it? If you could just sell it to people who couldn't get to the stadium, so it's additional revenue, great. You geo-block it in various locations. So he lives 200 miles away from, from Vicarage Road. Actually, he isn't, you know, that is added income for the club because he, you know, he'll go to away games in the northwest, but he wouldn't go wouldn't go to many home games because it's just physically not possible. So then we look at the fact that it's the UK, it's one transmission area, and we get into all the competition, we get into all the uh, competition. Like, you know, why should your son, two hundred miles away, have an advantage over costing more and a difference to somebody who lives two hundred yards mm. away? Yeah. And that's and that and that's the challenge that legislation and the whole the whole matrix. But that's, you know, in its own right. And that's the Article 48 argument, which maps, you know, well across. You know, we, we don't allow broad, live broadcast of games in normal circumstances between quarter to three and quarter past five to do two things. Protect the live audience, which is where the majority of fans, uh, where clubs revenue comes from, and actually protect participation, which I suppose is dwindling on a Saturday afternoon now. But it was, it was to try and make sure that people actually continue to play the game at amateur level, not just stay at home and watch it. And remember, and you know, the final part on this is if Watford versus Barnsley, just picking the two teams out again, is shown live on it can be shown live at three o'clock. That also means Manchester United versus Liverpool could be. So you, what you're challenging, what you're actually looking at and challenging then is is that fan who who has two teams, will they go through the turnstiles of Vicarage Road in this example? Or do they stay at home because they can watch Manchester United versus Liverpool on TV? So the competition is not just losing your own fans to that choice. It's actually losing your fan completely to another game. Answers on a postcard, please. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, sure. I'm not, no, I'm asking you right now. Does, does the Saturday 3pm blackout survive this? Survive COVID? I think it needs to do, Matt. Because if it doesn't, have we changed the viewing habits of a, of a population? How many people at £10, in the example that we're using, are you going now? You know, how many of them do you need to virtually guarantee to replace your gate income? There are people that will always go through the turnstiles, absolutely, without a doubt. But clubs' budget on an average attendance, which is basically their guaranteed attendance, and obviously live off the increase when they're doing well. Or you know the playing you know the opposition are bringing more fans because it's a bigger club because it's never been a level playing field. So I think it has to survive 
for football to reset itself, to find its level and to allow this fragmentation in the market to take its full to full effect to, to do that financial that financial model. But then, of course, it's where does the revenue go that's generated? So, you know, we've got transition arrangements where clubs are able to keep their own streaming money at the moment because it's a replacement for gate revenue as a basic principle. But if somebody in, if somebody in Watford's watching Manchester United versus Liverpool, where's that money going to? Is it going to Man United? Is it going to Liverpool? Or is it going to the collective of the 20 Premier League clubs? So if you think we've got issues at the moment about how money's distributed <laughs> on TV, yeah, I know. wait till you start that debate. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Look, one, one last from me. I mean, we, we started off talking about what the government might do in terms of this rollover and the competition issues they face. Basically, it will be if there is a, I'm throwing names out here, a zone, a Facebook, an 11, someone like that who says, no, 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 I was going to bid. What do you think they should do? Given, given a year of COVID, given a year of rowing with football about bailouts, what should the government do? Well, I think there's two things. There's, there's the element of calling bluff in there. Because it's really easy for somebody to say, after the event, I would have. Now, I, I suspect that uh, the Premier League in making this approach have probably got done some significant research and evidence finding that there isn't necessarily new entrants to the market. I mean, they owe that to their shareholders, never mind to the public and, and, and the government. So I think that it might be a little bit early for those markets. And that's, that's, that's what was the decision pre-COVID. So why would it change with all the different implications? So I, I think it's something that government should be looking to support because of, this, of, of the specific circumstances that we find. You know, the only thing that's not, the, the, the only thing that's anti-competitive about this process, well, I, I struggle to find an anti-competitive element because where is the competition? You know, when you look at DAZN, when you look at all the other TV markets around the world, all they've been doing is getting rebates and not or not making payments against their existing contracts. So how do you equate that to, oh, no, now we're going to bid for Premier League rights? They're just, they're, you know, the first thing you should say as government is, well, make good on all the, all the money that you've, that, you've, that you've unnecessarily claimed or you haven't supported people. And they, there you go. So I think there'll be an element of call. The government have got to find a way through this to get to allow the Premier League to secure what I think most people are describing as a very sensible and proportionate action. I said earlier, I think it supports loyalty as well towards them. And I, you know, I stand by that view because, you know, ultimately the broadcasters could have brought football down if that's what they'd have chosen to do. Or if they hadn't brought it down, what they certainly would have done is made those owners who were financially suffering have to dig even deeper into their own pockets, which in its own right could bring the clubs, you know, bring, could bring clubs down. So I think the approach is spot on. And what we shouldn't allow is red tape and bureaucracy to step in, stand in the way of what would be a very sensible decision. The final one for me, Sean, is uh, yeah, there are a lot of people, uh, probably quite rightly say, the rise in broadcast TV deals created the huge transfer market in the men's game that we have now. If the broadcast deals dropped again, there will be some who would say that that might bring a bit of realism to agents' payments, players' salaries, transfer market fees. Is that naive? Probably. Because, <laughs> and, I, and I say probably, Mark, because the consumer demands they want to see the best players. The consumer demands that we want to see great entertainment. Otherwise, they don't set the product. When you're competing in the Premier League for the best players in the world, you are competing for the best players in the world with the rest of the world. So there is always going to be 
a premium for those players. So whether you, whether the money's coming from broadcasters or it's coming from you know wealthy individuals who own the club, those prices are still going to be there. There is a school of thought that says if there isn't the money further down the pyramid, it could it could bring a it could see a drop in the revenues. But does that then stop the dream and the ability of people getting excited about the players that they've just signed because they've played in the Premier League before or this is you know this is the new kid on the block that, that's that's coming through? So I, I don't think one you know I certainly don't think if there was a thirty percent reduction in broadcasting revenue, you'd get a thirty percent reduction in uh, all the on costs that go with it because. It's a competitive industry. It's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much for your insight, Sean. It's been really, really good. Thank you very much for coming on. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Well, let's follow on from what Sean uh, spoke to us about and look at what the future might hold in broadcasting rights uh, in football. We can speak to Paolo Pescatore, who is a tech, media and telco analyst. There will be increasing fragmentation, won't there, Paolo? That, that is the nature of things. It isn't just going to be one dominant or maybe two dominant players in the market. Well, that's correct. You know, if you look at the current rights cycle, you know, Amazon came to the party and fragmented the rights, which meant that uh, there was another destination for fans and viewers to sign up to, which was something different because, you know, Amazon is a, is a pure streaming play at the time and you had to sign up to Prime. Having said that, Amazon does offer a month's worth of Prime for free. And there's obviously other players in the market. And if you want to sign up to the complete spectrum of sports in the UK, then you need to sign up to other providers as well. So you end up having to have, you know, four, five, six, even seven different billing relationships, which is a huge headache for fans. And ultimately, it means that they have to spend more. When BT entered the market, the perception, I'm guessing this is right, was that the reason they entered the market was to increase their broadband subscription and their broadband customers. If streaming service, was that is that fairly right or not, Paolo? For BT, it was very much at the time a defensive play to protect the broadband base. Right. Uh, they were he- they were hemorrhaging subscribers. And if you look back, you know, over the last, say, 15, 20 years, no other product has done a phenomenal job in stemming those losses and actually turning it around into a positive. And, you know, on a, another positive note, you know, that, you know, they've given Sky a good run for its money. So it did what it had to do. But now the dynamics are completely different in the market. If we talk about streaming services, we can't surely lump them all in together, can we? Because I would imagine Disney 
surely would have less need for Premier League football, given the fact that virtually every family I know got Disney during first lockdown, compared to DAZN, for example. So different streaming services will presumably want different things if they ever went with football. To a certain degree, you're absolutely right, Mark. And sport is important. You know, sport is one of the few genres that actually drives people to tune in to a live event. That drives audiences and that brings in new revenue streams, whether that's subscription, whether that's advertising, whether that's sponsorship, and so be it. When you look at you know, the nature of the market today, there's so much focus naturally on streaming because of the fact that you can go direct to the consumer. You can have a relationship directly with the user and you cannot ignore, as you rightly said, Mark, the phenomenal rise of subscriptions to streaming services over the last year. Netflix has paid the way. Disney's launch with Disney Plus has been an opportune moment. And all the others are now jumping on the bandwagon. And also the the, the other interesting element of streaming is that it, it lowers your cost and the overall cost of delivery and it effectively cuts the the middleman so you know if i'm a rights owner right now given everything that's going on you cannot ignore the streaming opportunity in that you know if you have a global fan base just keep it very simple of 100 million you could charge a pound a game there's 100 million there in your pocket already so that's where the opportunity resides of course there are challenges with streaming in in being able to deliver simultaneous games at a very good experience because of the fact that we still haven't got to a point where the infrastructure is reliable and robust enough to deliver that quality of experience. And of course, many of the games now are being broadcast in 4K, in HDR, and eventually down the line in 8K to provide users with a much more immersive experience. So that requires higher bandwidth requirements, delivering that all to the masses opens up some technical challenges. I just want to go back to that point about BT, which I think is really interesting, but it was a defensive play that worked. However, however, there's been a lot of comment that it was a very expensive play and it, it reflected in the share price and they have pulled back from it. And now the ultimate pullback, if you like, they're looking to sell. Why? Why are they looking to sell BT Sport? Well, BT Sport is very much in a different place to the inception of the service. Ultimately, it was devised as a move to protect the broadband base, hence why BT Sport was given away for free to broadband subscribers. A few years on, they now have a broad portfolio. They've been able to secure a cross-carriage deal with Sky, which means that Sky TV services through Now TV are sold on BT TV. Equally as well, BT Sport can be sold directly to Sky subscribers. So I think we're very much in a different position. BT Sport, arguably, when you look at the numbers, they're number one uh, in terms of subscribers, but in terms of revenue, probably fall short of, of Sky Sports. Now, there's so much focus on connectivity in the UK, largely driven by fibre rollouts and 5G. As a result of that, and the huge investment drive to actually provide wide coverage of fibre in terms of the rollout plans and 5G, you need to prioritise your investment plans differently. Therefore, BT's got BT Sport into a very good place, attractive studios, broad portfolio, given Sky Sports a run for its money. If you want to take BT Sport to a whole new level, which seems to be the objective within BT, 
then they need some form of outside investment. However, having said this, it does feel like that it's the slow, painful death of BT Sport. And the writing has been on the cards for a number of years, given the turmoil that BT has gone through over the last couple of years with the, the departure of the CEO, the EE takeover, a number of other issues and scandals that's led to potentially what look, looks like, as I said, the demise of BT Sport. Now, what happens next? It does feel like a complete sale is unlikely, can't be ruled out. You know, given the rights investment, you're looking over a billion pounds a year between Premier League, Champions League and everything else. Then you've got all the production costs associated with each of the sporting events, which aren't insignificant. But then you've got the attractive studios as well. So having said that, you know, who's willing to come in? You've got the Netflix of sport pretenders, I call them, as the zone. You know, they've made huge investments in other markets and they've steadily increased their positions in local rights in Germany with the Bundesliga and Serie A in Italy. And we all know that Premier League is the crown jewels in the UK sports broadcasting. So you need to have some element of, of Premier League. Now, if the Premier League decide to suddenly go down the auction route, then you clearly see DAZN being interested in buying those rights. Failing that, DAZN uh, would lose out in the continuation of those Premier League rights. They could be interested in buying a stake in BT. But you could clearly see over time, DAZN will want to take an increasing pie, uh, increasing piece of that. Do they have the financial appetite? They don't have an open checkbook. They can't keep spending big like they've been doing in other markets. But UK is a core market. Then you have Amazon that's been a strategic partner for BT. BT Sports been doing all the production behind the scenes along with Sunset and Vine for the Premier League coverage. They've been doing a lot of the work in the BT Sports studios for Amazon. But again, sport is not core to Amazon. Amazon's objective is all about driving prime video so you can see them steadily increasing their presence in sports but you cannot see them increasing that state further then potentially have disney disney for me could be an outside bet for the premier league rights given the previous affiliation that they have in the uk with espn of course espn is prevalent in the us uh, as we all know and of course you know if you look at what Disney's trying to do with Disney Plus, it's becoming an effectively a platform. You know, it's very much focused on, you know, kids entertainment, you know, content that resonates well with households. Recently, they've uh, included Star on Disney, which is adult entertainment. And you could see them adding sport as part of that in some shape or form. Would they want to go out there and buy BT Sport outright? I don't think so. But I do see them as an outside bidder um, for the rights. Do the owners of Disney not own Sky? Uh, not anymore, no. So, no. So right now, the, the owners of Sky are Comcast. Right, okay. So Disney have nothing to do with Sky anymore? Completely separate. Okay, right. DAZN and BT, if this deal is just rolled over and therefore DAZN can't enter the market, whether they want to or not, if this deal is rolled over, then if DAZN bought a stake in BT, it would give... It would give both BT and DAZN, it would give BT some money, obviously, and but it would also give a streaming platform partner to augment the traditional TV, whatever the whatever the digital coverage, whatever the, the correct term is for that. Would it? You would like to say yes, Mark, but it's not that straightforward. Okay. Um, <laughs> for, for, for the simple reason, DAZN is already present in the UK, uh, having launched an app that's solely focused on boxing. Of course, 
it cannot be a runaway success just solely on boxing, given the current relationship that Sky has with Matchroom Boxing that, that's due to come to an end. So they already have a presence through an app, and that app you can access on, on any device as part of you know their aspirations to be global. Hence why it, be, it becomes a little bit problematic in that how would the working relationship evolve moving forward if the zone were to acquire a stake in BT? Because you've got the zone app and you've got the BT Sport app. So then would you then effectively see the BT Sport service go on the zone or would the zone effectively replace BT Sport? So that's why it becomes quite of an issue in terms of what actually happens on where the content sits and what does that mean for the consumer when the zone is a relatively unknown quantity in the UK. And to go back to, before I rudely interrupted ITV, ITV would be interesting if they bought a stake in BT because of the Champions League side of things, presumably, and that would bring some domestic terrestrial TV presence back for the Champions League. is that Would that be the thinking there? Correct. Well, that's part of the thinking, but I think ultimately, if you would boil it down, it's the free-to-air element and being able to drive audiences and eyeballs. And I think that would be the attractive element to, to both parties. And of course, you know, ITV then would have access to the state-of-the-art studios uh, in Stratford through BT Sport, and they're going to obviously host everything that they do on the sports side at the studios in, in Stratford. So that would be an interesting tie-up. And that, again, would cement BT's continued involvement in the operation while also trying to drive audiences and, you know, drive audiences on a free basis, but also ultimately try and drive them towards a paid subscription model as well for all of the other services and, and breadth of portfolio that BT Sport provide. Right. That's the sale of BT Sport Sorted. I want to go back to your point then about the future and this move towards streaming, which everybody in football, everybody in sport has been talking about for years, well, at least two or three years. You know, the Netflix of sport, Prem flicks, golf flicks, whatever you want to call it, right? This idea that we're going to completely change the model of the last 30 years, subscriptions through pay TV, be it cable or satellite or whatever it is, wherever you are, and we're going to go direct to you. And you're going to pay me a small amount, but there's loads of you, more of you, and it's going to be a direct relationship. Now, I mean, I have heard every sort of theory on this as to why, yes, it's amazing. We're not there yet. You've talked about the buffering and the technological issues we talked about, well, I've certainly written about how it would mean the Premier League changing, completely changing. You would have to become a customer-facing organisation. It would have to have a billing department. It would have to have an IT department. You know, it would it would require a lot of back office growth, if you like. Maybe they buy it off the shelf. I don't know. Maybe they go in with a partner. But it would require a change. Why don't we get there? We all watch Disney Plus. We all watch Netflix. I have four, I have those four or five subscriptions. I would pay two, three pounds to watch games, maybe four. I don't know. Whoa. Whoa. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> I've paid 10 pounds to watch Southend this season. You know, so. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a very good point because when you look at the other, the other leagues and the clubs, you know, how have they survived during this pandemic? And, you know, credit to all of them in terms of managing their cash flow effectively. And, uh, and equally as well, a lot of them have done a really good job of embracing the streaming 
opportunity and making their games available to all of the fans. My local club's Cholton Athletic and they've done a phenomenal job of being able to stream all the games or most of the games via their web and through their own processes. Ultimately, when you look at the Premier League, you know, let's be honest about it. There's a term that's been used given the old fiasco around the this European Super League. There's an element of greed here. There's an element of trying to protect the financial position of the clubs and the long-term position of the contracts that have been forged with a lot of the players. And that's part of the problem and hence why there needs to be a complete overhaul. But equally as well, let's be honest, it's about the cannibalisation element. The Premier League, as things stand right now, in terms of the TV rights, whether they're domestic or overseas, still bring in a healthy chunk of change. And given the decline that we saw in the last rights auction, which is the current cycle, a lot of that shortfall was made up with the overseas rights. And, you know, everything remaining equal, we would have already had the rights auction. Now, inevitably, it would have been a lot lower and it would have relied a lot more on the overseas rights. There are different models that they've, exper- they've, they've experimented as well with over the last year. Pay-per-view is very fair to say it didn't work. Again, there was an element of greed in that the price that was set by the Premier League was high. Let's not forget as well that the providers that were providing that pay-per-view element incurred their own cost. So there's the billing costs on top of that, the production costs on top of that, a margin for themselves, which drove the price a lot higher. So effectively, the Premier League should have really brought that base price a lot lower to make it affordable. So we are some way away before we get to the streaming element. One thing I would say, though, Matt, when you look in the context of all of this, we shouldn't dismiss the whole fiasco of the European Super League did take shape. A lot of those clubs had have already made moves in launching their own TV channels. So effectively, they've already got their own channels and relationships with the fans directly. So, you know, there is an option that shouldn't be dismissed in that we might move down towards a path whereby the clubs take control of the rights and the distribution of their own games. Where it becomes challenging is where do you set the bar in terms of the home games and the away games? And we might get to a point where, let's be honest, fans are really, really interested in their own clubs and the neutrals will be interested in the general. So, you know, you could have a home season pass, away season, you know, a pass. There are different models that we could see. The challenge with streaming ultimately, when you look further afield, is that when you look at particularly the overseas landscape, connectivity does remain a barrier, particularly in markets where fibre is not available. Even 4G from a mobile perspective is not available. Many people still don't have a smartphone. So how do you watch a game purely in the streaming capacity. Paolo, it's interesting. I mean, I agree with all of that. And, I've, and I, I do hear those, those, those points you've made. I do hear them quite regularly. But the fundamental one, I think I hear most of all from the Premier League and Premier League clubs is around certainty. So the relationships they have with the big companies is a great big guaranteed check. Exactly. And, swap, he- and hence- swap that, swap that for the what? maybe they'll watch, maybe they won't. So how do you feel that? You're absolutely right. And one of the positive things to come out with the rollover of the Premier League contracts is is the certainty in an uncertain world, ultimately. But the business of it all is great. But I do worry for fans. We get Fans are disgruntled. uh, Viewers are frustrated. Having to sign up to another service, having to pay more, there is a ceiling. 
and and I think over the last year we've seen a reset in what users and households are willing to pay for telecom and media services in general. And we're, we're now getting to a point where the attention span of viewers, you know, this 20, obviously clearly 24 hours in a day, how much of that time are you willing to spend watching football, live football? We're now competing with music. We're now competing with games and all the other services. There's a reality check. And I think everyone needs to really start thinking about the fans and the viewers and the people who are ultimately paying those bills. Are all of these services that we've talked about, whether it's Sky or BT or Disney or DAZN or Netflix, are they, are they all still growing, is my first question, or have they plateaued? And I realise I've lumped them all in together. And secondly, is there room for growth in sports broadcasting. Mark, how long have we got? <laughs> this is another hour. <laughs> in the context, when you're looking at sports rights, you have to group them all in together. It's very difficult to kind of group them all together and then try to provide a concrete answer because they're all diverse businesses. Sky offers a wealth of... It doesn't just rely on sports. Hence why, when you look at Sky and BT, Sky has been hugely successful in cross-selling services. They've been able to offer... They've got a strong TV platform, whereas BT, they've been hugely successful with BT Sport, but BT TV has been an Achilles heel. This is a service that's been around for 20 years. If BTTV was in a far stronger place, I don't believe they would be in a position where they'd be talking about trying to sell a stake in BT Sport. Having said that, though, it's fair to say, to your point, you know, the Sky TV base traditionally over the last few years has declined, whereas streaming has just proliferated and skyrocketed. You know, even Netflix, you know, over the last year had an amazing period of subscriber acquisition driven by the pandemic. Disney, over 100 million, Disney Plus, over 100 million um, subscribers. So there's only one way for the streamers, it's going up. Whereas the traditional players have just been steadily falling, give or take. So there's plenty of growth in streaming, hence why that opportunity cannot be ignored from that perspective. But as Matt said, the current process provides a lot of certainty Hence why, if I was a Premier League, you would push extremely hard to roll over the existing contract. However, the existing rights holders, it'd be fair to say, would still want to pay a lot less. Equally as well, the zone and some of the others may want to come in and want to buy a little bit more. I'm sure Amazon would say our rights position with the Premier League has been successful in driving prime subscriptions, driving prime engagement, and probably driving people to spend more on Prime. So they might want to look at more selective packages if the packages were revamped in some shape or form. Hence why the rights auction has come, if you call it the rights auction or whatever you want to call it, at the wrong time for the Premier League. Where did demographics come into this? You know, one of the big things from about the Super League was, oh, they wanted to attract a younger audience. I mean, the irony of that is, you know, all these 60 and 70-year-old men apparently knowing what a, yeah, what a younger audience want and so on and so forth. Are the streaming services attracting the younger audience? Because surely the, the, the streaming services, it's the... It's the middle-aged parents at the moment that are paying for the for the streaming services. You and I, you and I, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> for the for the uh, for the kids for the kids to then watch in the house. So, it, 
when, when they're looking at the demographics and they want this new audience, that every sport seems to want this new audience, God knows where this new audience lives because i haven't seen it in all the sports that i work in where are they meant to be looking you're absolutely right and one of the players we haven't discussed in in all of this is is youtube it's the it's the number one destination for the millennials and the young people and you know when you look at those streaming services per se the two most popular platforms in terms of user base youtube which is free and Netflix that offers a number of tiers, but also there's, there's, there's a low price tier as well. And both of these services rely on just having some form of a connected device, whether that's a smartphone, whether it's a tablet, whether it's a TV or whether it's a, whether it's a laptop. And so that's a very valid point. Hence my point that I made earlier around the cannibalization. You need to be very wary for what you wish for. And there are other platforms out there that are free ad funded like Facebook. You know, and there was a lot of focus around Facebook potentially being a key partner for this ESL moving forward. But equally as well, they may give you eyeballs, they might drive in engagement, but do you want premium content being devalued on a free ad funded basis? And that's the biggest question mark, because ultimately that base, as you just uh, eloquently outlined, Mark, have not been accustomed to paying for content and not only do they go to these destinations but it also drives illegal streaming as well and that's my fear factor in all of this when i go back to the question i keep posing what does this mean to fans and there's a lot of people i speak to when i used to speak to them in the pub now i try to speak to them over these zoom calls and they're all saying to me i'm not going to go and spend you know 200 pound a month in all of these services when i can get it free off the internet somewhere that's what they say. It's not what I say. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. That's what I hear as well. That's what I hear uh, uh, as well, Paolo. Matt? Why doesn't the Premier more? League have an NBA-style pass? Why does, why, why does it bother with these auctions and these, these, these middlemen relationships? Why doesn't it just go direct to me? I think that is the path that we're going towards. And it's a path that may take, again maybe another one or two right cycles. It goes back to the point that we made in terms of protecting the position that we have, the guaranteed certainty of trying to maintain that um, revenue stream. But ultimately, that's the path we're heading towards. It's either that path or whether the clubs themselves manage the relationships directly. There are different ways that you can do it, but ultimately that's the path we're moving towards. I think also as well, we need to bear in mind the connectivity element and it won't be until we maybe three, four, five years down the line until we've got guaranteed connectivity, minimum service speeds, serving the rural communities, the not spots, which cannot be ignored as well. Fascinating to talk to you. And as we've established, Paolo, we, I mean, we could have been going on for another three hours, couldn't we? Uh, <laughs> uh, if you want to, you will be back on again in the future. I have no doubt about that. Yes, thank you, Paolo. Thank you for having me. I'd love to be on. Great. Really appreciate it. Great. Top stuff. Thank you, Paolo. That's it. Don't forget you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. Go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to take advantage of this special 40% discount. Theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Thanks very much. We'll see you next week. The Athletic.